Find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. So in today's topic, we're going to talk about something that I personally meet quite frequently in my day-to-day -day life. We talk about um, inner speech and from myself, I know it that Sometimes when I'm really thinking a lot about a topic that I start to discuss it in my head with myself, with other people, mostly people I know or always people I know, and kind of take their perspectives or the perspectives I assume they have about the topic I'm thinking about, and always feel like now my inner dialogue or my inner voices get too loud and I can't really focus on everything that's happening around me. Um, and today we're going to talk about this topic Exactly. And I think like all of us have some experience with it, but um, us two talking about it would be a bit boring for everybody else. That's why we invited an expert on the field who knows way more than we do. And uh, we like to welcome Daniel Müller. Hi there. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so Daniel Müller is a PhD in philosophy at the University of Osnabrück. Is that right? Um, I'm starting my PhD soon, but okay. I not yet have acquired the title PhD, so I'm a PhD student, basically. Okay, okay. So you're still in your master's right now? Or? Yeah, I'm kind of in the limbo, I'm in between. So I've finished my master's and I'm starting the PhD in October. Okay, so it's um, also an interesting time had for you. Indeed, yeah. A lot's happening right now. In order to or for make it a bit possible to get to know you and for people to get a feeling of who is talking here today. We would like to play a little uh, game. Um, the game is that we give you five um, sentence beginnings and ask you to finish the sentence. Try to be as spontaneous as you can. Um, and, well, maybe don't overthink <laughs> the answer too much. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite prone to that, so I'll try not to. But <laughs> it sounds quite fun. Perfect. The first sentence. As a kid, I always wanted to be. Well, I shouldn't overthink it. That's the premise. Um, I guess philosopher nails it. So surprisingly, I, I in in the beginning, I at sometimes thought I should be a cook, but then I somehow switched to philosophy because that was what interested me the most: being in marvel, in awe at the world, and trying to make sense of it. And that's basically what philosophy is all about. That's really interesting. I've never heard the answer that person wanted to be a philosopher as a kid well yeah i mean like i i probably said something like i want to be the captain of a football team but uh when i think about what i was interested in had i known back then what philosophy was i'd probably say i want to be a philosopher so i wanted to be a philosopher kind of unknowingly <laughs> <laughs> actually had the kind of the same experience because I remember very vividly seeing uh, in the television news um, when uh, AlphaGo beat the world champion in the game Go and it fascinated me and I didn't understand why and only like 10 years later when I learned of the field cognitive science I finally understood why I was fascinated by that news report so much. That's actually, I think that's the coolest situation when you're just... So, so the Greek language has a word for it, which is meraki, which basically means that you, well, it's, it's not perfect, but uh, it means that you love what you're doing, you're really passionate about something. And I think 
that is kind of like the first glimpse of something that you have met Aki about, so that you, well, something that just grabs you and you want to throw your whole life into that. Yeah. So the thing that fascinates you and gets you into this bottleneck of always wanting to do more with it. Yeah, yeah. that kind of pulls you in. Okay, our second sentence. Um, if I was an emoji, I would be. <laughs> I think thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> because also because I say yes to a lot of things, like uh, mostly. But yeah, I, I'd probably be thumbs up. <laughs> nice. Um, my favorite thing to do on a day off is? My favorite thing to do? Um, I think I'd probably go to a lake if I could like where I grew up there were a lot of lakes around uh, that would be probably the perfect day having a cool drink in the shade um, reading a book writing something that sounds awesome uh, I'm always uh, I love going to water as well um, I'm very much a uh, forest and water person right now I'm most fascinated by right now um so surprisingly, well, you could think it would be in a speech since I'll begin a PhD in that topic. But I was in Berlin recently and I uh, got to know a person from um, Tanzania who was, uh, who's a researcher as well. And he's researching urbanism and basically trying to break dogmas, particularly dogmas by Western uh, researchers, which are still very, very much the default in urbanism and he's trying to bring kind of like a Zwahelian perspective to it and I really I really like that a lot getting in touch with a whole different thinking style so that was really super interesting like we met by pure coincidence but uh, yeah I had some nice talks with him that sounds super interesting and also like a topic for the future as well indeed I know it's time to call it a day when uh, well, I know to call it a day when I realize that it's probably going to impact my mental health if I continue. <laughs> you know, I sometimes have, have dif uh, difficulties with uh, actually acknowledging my borders or even finding them. Um, that is something that I personally want to work on, to, to know sooner when it could have a long-lasting impact on me. That was something I struggled with a bit during the master's thesis. I think that's an experience many people know, especially when they are currently doing research Indeed. or when they're currently working on a project that one tends to overgo own boundaries because you can always do more. Especially as a student, you don't have like your 40 hours, you work yeah. a week. You can always do more. So You've got all the free time and actually you don't have any free time because either you are actually doing more, putting more into research, or you kind of have a guilty conscience about not doing it. At least that was the, the case for me. So, yeah. yeah. But surprisingly still, I feel like there are some people who experience this and think that this is only their experience while everyone else is just doing fine. Um, so therefore, it's really important to just connect and, yeah, and yeah. find people who have the same struggle. That's very true. We've just talked about that you've done your master's thesis. Um, did you do your bachelor's and master's in Osnabrück or where did you do it? Yeah, I mean, I've been here for quite some time. I've done my, so I started studying in 2016 uh, in the bachelor's pro program. And um, 
Yeah, I did my bachelor's thesis in neuroscience mm-hmm. uh, with Peter König, and I did my master's in philosophy with Uwe Meyer. And those are my two main interests in cognitive science, I would say, neuroscience and philosophy. I think they also make quite a nice mixture in the end, don't they? They do. Yeah, we uh, talked about that you are um, starting a PhD thesis or that you are a PhD student right now. Um, Could you outline what the main focus of your research is right now? Um, so I'm, I'm going to be a PhD student, to clarify again. I'm starting in October, so I'm not really a PhD student yet, but I can definitely clarify what I will research. And I think we'll talk about it in a bit more depth and maybe breadth as well soon. But just as a short primer, um, the, so it's, it's a PhD within a project um, that is a binational research project together with the University of Salzburg. And it will be, I think, four or five PhD students working together. And the key question is, of the project, how can we think in a language? So it's very much the intersection of the philosophy of cognition, so the thinking part, and the philosophy of language, so the yeah, language part, obviously. My particular research interest as of now, like, I mean, it's always tentative, you know, it shifts around people doing their bachelor's thesis or master's thesis might know this, um, that you start out kind of with a clear goal and then you're in the process and somehow do you realize that you now have a slightly different focus. And I think that happens quite a lot during PhDs as well. But as of now, I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit sidetracked. As of now, the, the idea is that I will research how unconscious inner speech is possible, whether it's possible, how we can argue for its possibility, Ideally, I would love to be able to at some point formulate an empirically falsifiable hypothesis that is neuroscientific in nature or mm-hmm. neurolinguistic in nature, um, where I really can do, say, an EEG experiment about um, whether people have unconscious uh, inner speech or not. Because as you might imagine, the way inner speech experiments at the moment are done is People are asked, how often do you experience in a speech? And they might do like a logbook of that, writing down whenever they have an episode of in a speech and what it's about. But that all presupposes consciousness mm-hmm. because otherwise you wouldn't have access to that inner speech. Yeah. Um, I want to jump in here because for I think for us, consciousness is a term we've heard or not heard earlier. But could you maybe briefly explain what consciousness and unconsciousness means, especially in the context you're using it in. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense because uh, I think both of the terms, consciousness and unconsciousness, are quite uh, full of of meaning, more than they can probably bear. Um, So consciousness for me simply means that there is something it is like at the moment. There is something it is like to experience what you're experiencing at the moment. This is called phenomenal consciousness because there is a phenomenon that you are directly experiencing. So that would be consciousness uh, on the one hand, and then unconsciousness would be not in the sense psychoanalysis uses it with the unconscious where a lot of stuff is going on that is super important. I mean, probably there is a lot of stuff going on that is super important, but in a different way. So unconscious is basically just things that you do not experience at that point in time those would be unconscious so i mean that's a bit yeah i kind of have to find the trade-off between brevity and uh 
scrutiny mm -hmm. because um, there is something like unconscious experience as well. But let's for now say basically consciousness is experience and anything that you do not experience at the moment is unconscious at the moment for you. Um, when you would picture that, um, would it mean in a way that um, unconsciousness is when you have this um, ice rock? Is, this ice, is it ice rock in English? Iceberg, isn't it? Is it isn't iceberg? It? I'm not. So when you picture an iceberg, that the unconscious part is the part below the water and the conscious part is the tip that you see. That's, that's a beautiful metaphor. Okay, yeah. And actually, I think the way we talk about the unconscious also kind of plays a lot with that metaphor, like the depth of the unconscious and then it bubbles up into consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I like that metaphor a lot. Um, you say it bubbles up into consciousness, so it, there is no clear border between consciousness and unconsciousness so like someone could argue that um, if it's unconscious I'm not really concerned with it because I might be only concerned with my consciousness but the unconscious is also really important to your subjective experience right? So I think the problem is if you imagine it to be static it's really dynamic actually so what has been unconscious a second ago might now have been Uh, made access to, to consciousness. So um, the things which are still unconscious but probably will soon become conscious are usually called pre-conscious. Um, yeah, so, so I would say those are kind of the differences, but it's really dynamic. So otherwise it would be problematic because you'd always experience kind of the same stuff and you wouldn't really have a change in thoughts and feelings and Therefore, of course, the unconscious is like a vast resource. Also, if you think about what we can do, where well, we never consciously think about how we do it, driving a car, walking up the stairs. If you break the automatism and really think about each and everything you're doing, it gets harder and stuff. Yeah, easier. true. So it's kind of, could you say that the autopilot people experience is a bit the unconscious um, status, or would you say that it's still different? I would say it's, in it's a particular instance of unconsciousness, uh, one that is very useful because it kind of uh, lifts off a burden. You know, it reduces, we would say, cognitive cost because it's not something that you have to think about. You can just offload it to your body, which um, has just done it often enough in order to kind of know what to do. Yeah. Also, since we are talking about inner speech, um, is there any kind of definition or anything like is everything we think inner speech is only dialogue inner speech is every thought inner speech some people also think in pictures so what's inner speech and what isn't yeah so as it always or not not always but mostly as in philosophy the more you ask for definitions the more you, you'll get like you probably get more definitions than than you have philosophers so um, people have different ideas Uh, I think one which is very prevalent is that in the end, inner speech means an inner voice that you are uh, actually perceiving. So that would basically equate inner speech with auditory mental imagery. Um, that is something some people do. It's not what we do in the project. We define inner speech much more mechanically. So uh, defining it in terms of... Uh, kind of an inner voice 
directly ties it to consciousness. That is a definition where unconscious speech just by definition kind of is impossible because you have to, you know, perceive the voice in order for it to count as a speech. But then unconsciousness speech just is impossible. So that is not the definition of inner speech we go with. Um, the definition of inner speech is more tied to that notion of speech. So it's an idea of inner speech kind of is speech production minus the articulation part. So in the same way that um, we produce speech, inner speech is generated, but it's just not uttered out loud. So all the uh, organs, which are or not, not organs, but body parts, which are part of overt outer speech are not part of inner speech. Besides that, it's pretty equal. And of course, there are a lot of different varieties of inner speech. Yeah, so you mentioned exactly. in a dialogue, and you already mentioned that it has a cognitive benefit for you because mm -hmm. you can do perspective taking, seeing things differently. So it's not that you're just telling yourself things that you already know and are bored by it, but much rather it really has kind of cognitive uh, benefits for you, which I think is very good. It's, I think also something Nicola Kompa argued for a lot. She's a philosopher of language at the Institute of Philosophy. And um, actually she's the uh, principal investigator for my PhD, so she's basically my supervisor, or going to be my supervisor. But besides um, in our dialogue, there's also in a monologue, um, people sometimes experience their own voice, sometimes another person's voice. Some people can control it, you know, they can just choose to having their life narrated by Morgan Freeman or David Attenborough, <laughs> or whomever you like, whomever voices you like. Yeah. I think that's great. It I is, haven't yeah. figured out how to do that, but... I'll let you know once I do. <laughs> it would be fun to be able to think um, in different dialects then. True, true. Like if you would be really fascinated by a special dialect when you then start in a monologue in that dialect just to entertain yourself. Yeah, it's true. So I've, um, I grew up in Bavaria and sometimes my inner speech is Bavarian, although I do not have that accent at all. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, actually is. And it also conveys a different mood than regular German. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know from myself that I tend to think in German or English since okay. I'm talking a lot in English and I've also been living abroad for two years. So um, I also feel that when I'm thinking in another language, my emotions shift. Um, and something I've read in preparing for this episode was that inner speech is argued to um, help with cognitive processing, which you've also mentioned just before. Is there, um, like, how would you say is the conscious and unconscious part of cognitive processing? So, for example, emotional processing of going through a topic which has been challenging or which is just really emotionally loaded? That's an amazing question. Um, so I would probably say that, um, so, so it's basically a lot. You have the cognitive part, you have the emotional part. Um, But I think the answer to both of those is similar, namely that most definitely has an unconscious part and it probably also has a conscious part. Otherwise, I think if you don't experience the emotion, then there was no emotion for you, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think it needs a cognitive part, but the way it comes to you, like it's not always under your control, that's probably, probably unconscious, at least from my experience. 
Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. It's just, um, I think for me, the part of, um, like, on the one hand, I like the idea that um, you yourself can be a solution in a way mm-hmm. for um, things that have been challenging. But also then I asked myself in how far we rely on feedback, because when we hear what another person is saying, we kind of get an idea of what the person might be thinking, but don't really get an idea of what the person is really thinking. So when I'm listening to you, I can um, perceive your words and I can imagine what your thinking mechanisms might be behind it. But I will never be able to really estimate or to really copy your thinking. So that seems a bit unclear to me. Right. So I think, um, I mean, that is also, that could be potentially a challenge to the um, hypothesis we have in the project where all thinking is except for imaginistic thinking, so mental imagery, where you think in pictures, that would not be in a speech. Mm -hmm. It needs to have a certain syntax, so a certain grammatical structure to kind of speech. Um, But all thoughts that do have that structure, and that's quite a lot of thoughts, they count as in a speech. And now with that, if the idea is that thinking goes down mostly in natural language and not in, say, a different language, which some people call the language of thoughts, other people call it mentalese. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is a question that is also pretty central to the to the um, project. And if I understand you correctly, then you are saying that um, in overt speech, like when we communicate, when there is conversation, it doesn't really give you like it gives you an idea of what the person is thinking. They might also betray you. They might be lying to you. You have certain uh, well, uncertainty there. And moreover, it's basically a form of compression, probably, right? Um, I can't utter everything I'm thinking at the moment. And if that is a natural speech anyway, then why am I not able to uh, utter it 100%? Or why are you not able to understand it 100%? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it could be understood as a challenge. I think it's quite a good point. Um, Language cannot transfer everything of our thinking, not to speak of emotions. Mm-hmm. Those are much much less captured by language, I think. I actually think that is kind of like my, my impulse is to say, well, let's just invent words for mm-hmm. certain feelings because we have anger, we have uh, sadness and all that stuff. We have some particular emotional words like angry, if you're hungry and angry, but I think there's just so much more in between for which we lack words. And that means that our perception is somehow pre, pre-cognitive, like our understanding is kind of lacking as long as we do not have the words to actually describe it. So yeah. that's why I would say we need more words for that. Um, to come back to your challenge, though, first of all, your thinking style is not just dependent on what you consciously think at the moment, because imagine consciousness as a bottleneck. We can only hold, for example, seven digits roughly in our working memory. And so we can also probably not hold too many thoughts at the same time in consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite good that much of our memory, for example, is unconscious at the time because we just can't process that much 
at one given instance. So probably one of the reasons why we can't communicate it is that we only have access to what's conscious right now. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, and we are also limited in our resources and time and energy and all that. So probably that's why we cannot really convey the whole thinking style uh, to another person. But at the same time, you think that everything else, like everything that you have in inner speech is um, completely conceivable to yourself. So in a way that like the there are limits to what I utter and other people get from it. Are there like limits what you get from your own inner speech? Can you lie to yourself, for example? Okay, that's a good question. So um, I think that you can deceive yourself. I don't think that you are deceiving yourself when you are trying to deceive another person, but you know the truth, kind of. Then you're not deceiving yourself. You're just deceiving the other person. So, but I think then it's not just I have a thought, um, but so additionally to a thought, you have a certain intention to deceive the person. And those two together, I think, well, are sufficient for, for bringing it about. So that's probably my answer to whether you would be deceiving yourself in any instance. No, you can, of course, still deceive people. A lot of people do that. <laughs> probably not the best thing to do, though. I'm just right now thinking when, like, this mechanism of lying to yourself could also be protection in a way, couldn't it? Because it's probably mostly out of protection because you have, I think... The reason why most people are uh, prone to self-deception is because they have conflicting beliefs and both of them are pretty strong. Um, and then somehow you still need to, you mm-hmm. know, have some kind of consistency for yourself. And if you still can't or don't want to change your behavior or your beliefs, then you just have to change the truth kind yeah. of then yeah. you just have to say no that works together although you might somewhere in the very back of your head know that it doesn't mm-hmm. so i think that would be what self-deception mostly is and i think it's definitely a protection mechanism but would you then also say that um the unconscious inner speech is a bit more the um well unfiltered kind or would you say that there's all already a filter in the unconscious So this is mostly tentative. I haven't really read up too much about mm-hmm. it, but in my research proposal, some I, I also tried to, or I wanted to investigate also what purpose unconscious inner speech might serve. And I actually think it's 100% unfiltered. It's nothing that you have control of mostly. Um, and it's kind of like the... Well, it's it's kind of a stream that just flows in the background mm-hmm. um, with all kinds of things, things that don't fit into your model of the world, things which might just be like cognitive garbage, mm-hmm. um, but also very valuable things. And I think some people have the ability to actually plug into that stream, Yeah. Uh, particularly artists. And I think this is where a lot of inspiration is coming from. Mm-hmm. from uh, unconscious inner speech, probably also from unconscious mental images, which somehow become conscious or somehow you can control whether to, to make them conscious. Mm-hmm. And that is where I believe a lot of inspiration is coming from for artists, for authors. 
Something I was thinking about right now is that I've heard um, that people, or especially artists, do drugs mm -hmm. for this reason as well. Would you say that, or would you assume that there's kind of the possibility to dive more into your unconsciousness by certain methods? It could be drugs, but it could also be meditation. It could be certain um, protocols you follow. Yeah, I think that it's possible. I'm not 100% sure whether it is altering your unconscious mm -hmm. also. So whether it's kind of pure access to the unconscious or access to somehow altered unconscious, which is then becoming conscious. Um, but I think it gives you control of where to kind of focus the spotlight of consciousness, yeah. to use that metaphor. And so, at least if you're doing it kind of out of your own choice, um, there are states of consciousness, of course, where you do not have control, but still are kind of your spotlight of consciousness is directed to some parts of yourself that you don't like. Mm -hmm. There are some uh, psychiatric uh, states, I think, where this happens. But I'm not an expert yeah. in that. Unfortunately, we don't talk about psychopathology a lot in cognitive science, That's at least true. at our institute. That sometimes comes up in some courses, but more psychology, I think. Yeah. Coming back to your, um, especially your topic, you said that you want to also try to do EEG on inner speech. Is there any research on that topic right now? And how exactly would you achieve inner speech using EEG? Uh, probably you would not achieve inner speech using EEG, but you would measure, measure yeah. the brain activity that ideally correlates with inner speech. Mm -hmm. You probably, uh, if our hypothesis is true, you would probably uh, assume that there would be a lot of activity in the Brahman areas 54 and 53, if I remember correctly, which is referred to as Broca's area, um, which is basically the area in the brain which is... Uh, responsible for speech production mm -hmm. um, and also some other things. I think some uh, semantics, so the meaning of language is also partly in the same areas. Um, the reason why I don't really like the name Broca's area is because it's named after a French scientist, yeah. Paul Broca, and he was a racist, 100%. <laughs> uh, yeah, and also misogynist and all that. That's why I don't want to give him the credit of naming that area after him, mm -hmm. but he was probably the first one to describe it, so that's why it's called that yeah. way. Yeah, so when Broca's area is uh, lesioned, people often struggle to speak fluently. Right. But there's also this other um, quite popular area, which is often um, considered to correlate with language production, the Wernicke's area. Is, does that also influence um, or the speech production you would be interested in? Um, probably. Like there is this arcuate fasciculus, which is basically the kind of uh, nerve fibers connecting Wernicke's area and Broca's area. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so obviously we're not just talking without listening to ourselves. You can have these experiments and give people headphones which are completely uh, blocking any sound. And then after some time when they speak and they speak and they speak, and they don't have the, the audio feedback, the speech becomes a bit uh, less understandable somehow. So definitely there is a connection between those two. Mm -hmm. Like it's probably uh, a 
sensory motor connection. So mm -hmm. there is a direct feedback between the motor output, which is speech that you produce, and uh, the sensory feedback, which is the speech that you then perceive, like yeah. your own speech, which you again perceive. So probably there would be activation in both of these. Mm -hmm. And again, this is already probably an experiment where people are just sitting there and their default mode network is activated. So that's basically the brain network that activates when people just sit somewhere and don't like are instructed to do nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably just wait for in a speech. But then again, the only way you can know whether in a speech is happening at that instance is the person telling you. And if the person is telling you, then again, it's consciousness speech. Yeah. So that's why I'm not really yet prepared to give a good answer to how that EEG experiment should look like mm -hmm. investigating unconsciousness speech. But for consciousness speech, it has been done already. Okay, yeah. Um, were there findings, just because I'm quite interested in lesions of the brain, mm -hmm. um, do you know, if, or are you aware of any um, studies or any findings in how far inner speech can be fluent when you have lesions in your brain? Because, like, it could be that just the motor output is um, disrupted, but the thinking is still fluent enough, or mm -hmm. is it hard to measure since people might struggle to report what they are thinking? I'm not aware of studies concerning mm -hmm. that topic. Um, my guess is it kind of depends where exactly the lesion is, how mm -hmm. big it yeah. is, the, the lesion area. Um, and yeah, like, of course, how should the person tell you? Maybe they can still write fluently, but not speak fluently. Um, that would be actually a really good thing to investigate. I'm not aware of, of any research into that direction. There is a lot of research going into uh, inner speech and schizophrenic patients, mm -hmm. which makes sense because they have an inner voice that is kind of malicious and telling them to do things and they yes. cannot control the voice. Um, so that would be a conscious inner voice that you do not have, uh, well, autonomy about. So mm -hmm. you cannot control that inner voice. Um, so that's also another level that we should distinguish. So there's the distinction between conscious and unconscious on the one hand, and then between uh, control or no control of the voice uh, on the other hand. Actually, by the way, I also have recently read something which I also wanted to talk uh, with you about concerning inner speech in large language models. So this mm -hmm. is, I think, a very cognitive science <laughs> topic but because it's probably connecting things that are interesting to a lot of people, but particularly cognitive science uh, re uh, researchers and students. And so the idea of the paper was to see whether a large language model, in this case, it was not ChatGPT by OpenAI, mm -hmm. but basically its sibling, mm -hmm. which did not have content filters. So uh, kind of the same uh, mechanism behind it, also a transformer-based architecture, as I think all large language models by now have. And um, what they did was basically write prompts. So they were not having a look at the architecture because, well, OpenAI keeps that one closed off because yes. that's basically their business model, so they don't show it. So they were basically just asking the large language model questions. And the first question was, 
do you have in a speech? <laughs> and the answer was, yes, of course I do. Uh, I have thoughts that might be different from yours and more focuses on some, on some logical connections and stuff like that, but I do have. And interestingly, whenever it answered questions concerning in a speech, it did not use the term in a speech, but the term thought. But mm -hmm. I mean, that's not saying too much. Then they were asking it questions for which one could assume in a speech is needed. Something like, do these two words rhyme? Or uh, finish, or just tell me the last word of a sentence. Um, so in this case, in a speech would be defined as, there is something uh, that has a particular syntactic structure and semantic meaning going on in the inside, but it's not overt. So mm -hmm. that would be the definition of in a speech in this case. And it did well in some tasks. So it could tell whether real words rhymed. Mm -hmm. um, it couldn't tell whether real words rhymed with words which were made up. Mm -hmm. So even like it was asked to give an explanation. Why do these rhyme? Why, why doesn't that rhyme? And when it was a real word, uh, a real word and a fantasy word, um, it said, well, it doesn't rhyme because one ends with an O. And in the other, the vowel is an O. So basically, like that, like those two rhymed, and like the large language model was supposed to say that they rhyme, but couldn't find it. So it can't abstract to new words, which it mm -hmm. didn't know before, I guess. Um, so what their conclusion in the end was: uh, it could do a lot of tasks. It couldn't do all the tasks. That's why it failed the imitation game. So it mm -hmm. was kind of like a Turing test for in a speech. Um, it's remarkable what it can do, but we should be aware what it is. Namely, in the end, basically just a uh, autocomplete on steroids. <laughs> so you probably know the autocomplete function of your mobile phone if you're yes. typing text, and it tells you you could use this word next. So it sees what you've typed thus far and does the stochastics and uh, then tells you what word would with the highest probability come next. And in a nutshell, that's also what LLMs do with a lot more data and a lot more sophistication in the system. You probably know a lot more about that than me. So um, but yeah, that's why philosophers at least and probably also other scientists are rather hesitant to grant LLMs real mental states, such mm -hmm. as believing something, knowing something, or also thinking about something. I have a question regarding the experiment with the rhymes. Is there an equivalent experiment with people who are born deaf? Because like, I'm not sure if um, um, recognizing rhymes requires you to have like auditory functionality, and if you're deaf, maybe you don't have that so how does do, do you have any idea how inner speech works for them and if i have an idea how inner speech works for deaf people yes uh, i don't know exactly how they or how correctly they are able to uh, capture rhymes probably they do quite well in reading like if mm -hmm. the words look similar um then like if, if they read something and the the word ending is similar, probably they were, would be able to, to tell that it rhymes. Maybe not in English, because English language pronunciation is just so far off of the way you write it, but um, I can't make any definite statement towards that. But 
deaf people do have inner language and it is actually inner signing. They do have inner sign language. That's, oh yeah, I've read that. Uh, yeah. That they kind of, um, do they think in pictures or do they think in abstract forms of the um, deaf language, that's their sign good. language? That's, that's a good question. Mm. Um, so the way I imagine it, but I'm not really deep down into the literature, yes. is that um, probably it's... It also depends on whether you have agency of, of uh, the signing or not, so whether it's you who is doing the signing or whether it's someone else. So that's probably similar to are you hearing, hearing your own voice or someone mm -hmm. else's. Um, I think if it's their own signing, they might also have kind of motor imagery. So mm -hmm. they imagine the movements of the gestures. And I think if it's someone else signing, it's probably rather mental imagery. So yeah. they are just having mental pictures, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, interesting. But those do have syntactic structure and meaning, so they would also count as a language. So that would be kind of a border case yes. where it's both yes. imagistic, but also language. So if any one of the listeners knows anything about it, please comment, research on it. Um, coming back to the paper you just mentioned, um, you've also mentioned afterwards that one difficulty might be English language in particular, since in English it's not always obvious how words are pronounced. I would say in most cases the rules are more clear in German. Mm. Because my thought when you talked about the paper was it might be that a model who had um, similar input training uh, might perform better on a language which follows more um, pronunciation rules than English does. That might be. Still, the problem was not really in detecting rhymes in real words. It could do that pretty well. It was basically new words which don't exist. Yeah, but for them, German also has rules like after certain um, syllables, you pronounce another syllable in a certain way. Right. And I would say that's not the same in English. That's true. That's true. I agree that pronunciation in German appears to follow rules, which do have some exceptions, but in English it seems to be all exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, those rules in LLMs are not hard-coded in any way. They are kind of recognized patterns within the data. Mm -hmm. So I think it doesn't really matter how high the complexity is as long as you have sufficient data from which you can extract the patterns. Yeah, I, so I, I don't agree. think that's really the problem it had. It's something else about um, abstracting from uh, already given inputs to one new deviant input. Because I think any human being could tell you whether tree and... Uh, I'm trying to come up with words that are made up but end on the same syllable. Uh, and all the words that come to my mind are real words. Um, key. No, that's a real key word. Is Damn also it. Word. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Do you have any idea? Maybe that's, maybe that's a bad example. Uh, flower and crower does rhyme. Yeah. I think crower is not a real word. Anyone correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Um, but humans probably could tell you, well, that rhymes, and I don't know that one word because 
like native speakers would probably tell you that doesn't exist and non-native speakers might tell you, I don't know that word. Yeah, yeah. But they would be able to tell you that, that it rhymes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the algorithm just can't do. Yeah, but like there already is the difference that we hear the rhyme, but we don't read it. Yeah, so yeah, that's true. He would jump in again and counter argue that when you put in a written language, you still have to make up how it sounds. But when you hear a word, you hear how similar it sounds. But I think there are experiments that show that people are very good at um, producing the uh, or following the rules, even though they don't really understand the rules there are, but they have an intuitive understanding of it. Mm -hmm. So there's a very famous experiment where um, uh, it's about the, the plural S and how it's pronounced. Um, so there is like a drawing of something and the researchers tell people, look, there is a VOOC the word doesn't exist and then mm -hmm. they say oh there comes another one now there are two and then the other the participant has to um, complete the sentence and they say there are two VOOCs and they use the correct S while there are like the the English rule would force you usually to use like a sharper S so it would be VOOCs but they, they you don't use that word um, so the people are very intuitively good at um, using the right exception to the rule uh, and I think like the same thing holds when you get like the written word um, you always know how to pronounce it even though you have never heard of it yeah yeah true and also um, the written English ending of the two words the one that was made up and the real word were also the same and when asked the AI also gave the reason but that reason didn't make sense yeah. like that doesn't rhyme because one ends on ow and the other one ends on ow. Like, obviously, it should follow that it rhymes, but the AI cannot come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So I think there is something else that is not working there. I cannot really tell you what it is. Okay, yeah. But I think it's not really language-specific. I think another interesting question one might ask uh, is if we think in language, how did the language get there? Like, mm. how did it get into mm. our head? Kind of. mm -hmm. And there is a quite, quite a nice story to tell. Um, so a Soviet psychologist called Lev Vygotsky, mm -hmm. um, he was very interested in developmental psychology and developmental linguistics. And at the time, there was another person very much interested in developmental psychology called Piaget. Mm -hmm. So he's really, I think, very much cited in pedagogy still. And Piaget said, well, there is a particular phase when uh, children are talking to themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they are not yeah. talking to other people, but when you leave them alone in a room, they just start, start talking to themselves. And he thought very negatively about that period and he called it autistic speech. So they are just, you know, producing some speech, but it's not directed towards anyone. That means they are somehow malfunctioning in, um, in the social realm. Ah, um, yeah, yeah. So that was his idea. Mm -hmm. And then Piaget said, no, actually, it's the other way around, kind of. So this is really a good phase to have. And also, I think most people have it to varying degrees. Um, so Piaget's story differs a lot from Vygotsky's story. But Vygotsky's story is most interesting to inner speech because Vygotsky says, well, the way you learn a language is you interact with caregivers, 
with your community as a child, as a really, really young child, yes. as an infant. And they'll tell you what the name of certain things will be. Mm -hmm. They'll use child-directed speech so that it's easier for you to understand. And that way you learn about things in the world, about their relations, about causality as well. So uh, how one thing causes another, how me slapping the bottle causes it to fall down. Yes. And that's how you learn language. That's a really social process. And then when you somehow have a sufficient level of proficiency in that language, you start to actually use it as a cognitive tool. Mm -hmm. And that is what is happening in that period of what Piaget called autistic speech and what Vygotsky called private speech. So you're talking to yourself. If children are playing or are faced with a task, they can um, use language to somehow structure their thinking. Yes. And children who uh, exhibited a lot of private speech performed better in certain cognitive tasks. That was experimentally shown. And... Vygotsky's hypothesis is that after that period, so it, it ends again, like we are not talking to ourselves all our lives, but after that period of private speech, it basically is internalized. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes underground. That is, I'm sorry, that is where in the speech is coming from. <laughs> um, so in a way, one could say that in a speech evolves, maybe or might evolve in the process of first hearing it by caregivers, then repeating it and then internalizing it. Exactly. Oh, and then, then you can use language as a cognitive tool. Vygotsky's point is a bit stronger. He actually says that kind of language is the fundament of cognition. Mm -hmm. um, and at, at least it scaffolds it in a very nice way. Yeah. So we can use language, we can use that syntactic structure to also structure our thinking. And the categories that language provides us with are mostly the categories we think in. Yeah. So you realize that if you're learning a new language or... You've been raised with two languages. Some languages, like all languages, have gaps, but they do complement each other quite well. Mm -hmm. And you get a new perspective on the world when you, when you learn a new language. Yeah. And that shows you also how strongly language shapes the way you think. Yes. And yeah, so, so that's kind of Vygotsky's point. That's how inner speech gets where it is, how it gets into that. Um, yeah. I like that. That story about it. Yeah, it is. It sounds. Uh, it also sounds reasonable. I it's think so a, too. It's not a theory where you hear it and you're like, that. That sounds so abstract. It's. It sounds quite intuitive. Um, we have heard the word cognition a lot in this episode, um, but we always try to um, always want to um, maybe put the topic we're talking about in the context of cognitive science. So why is it cognitive science and maybe what fields in cognitive science are the most relevant to, to this topic? Mm -hmm. So um, I thought you would ask me the C question, what is cognition? Uh, that's the question you should never ask a kind of cognitive yeah. scientist because, yeah, it's kind of diff difficult to answer, I think. I mean, I, I by now could give an answer, but I'm not sure if it would be satisfactory. At the moment, I'm doing kind of the same thing with philosophers. I just ask them, what is philosophy? And they really don't like it. Uh, but anyways, um, so the answer to your question, how, like, which fields in cognitive science fit this, this topic particularly well is, I think, neatly answered. It's uh, linguistics, um, psychology, mm -hmm. philosophy, and neuroscience. 
But of course, you can extend it to artificial intelligence, yes, as we've always. seen. Yes, <laughs> um, But I think that's kind of the core fields, like probably their intersections, neurolinguistics and uh, philosophy of cognition. Mm -hmm those type of things. But the journals, the research is published in bare names such as psychological philosophy. Yes. So it's, it's kind of in the intersection. It is, yeah. When I first read in a speech, I thought it was mainly uh, psycholinguistics. Um, and then I saw, well, but then I thought, I know that you do quite a lot of consciousness or unconsciousness. Um, and then I started to think about it from another perspective and I realized for me it's uh, quite... It was quite tricky to get my mind into inner speech and philosophy in a combination. Um, and I hope that in this episode we opened the field a bit for people. Um, if you could give people one sentence uh, where what they should remember about the topic of inner speech, especially maybe viewing your thesis and today's episode, what would you tell people? One sentence? Can be two. Okay. Okay. I have to think for a second because I really have trouble with brevity. Um, so I think the take-home message really is, uh, first of all, inner speech is a super interesting topic. There is a large variety of it and it can be defined as basically having a natural language that you use in your thought and it can be unconscious and that might be really a creativity boosting thing when you can tap into it and it basically develops from outer speech and is then internalized in childhood so that's probably like five sentences but they were all short so i hope that's <laughs> fine that's the take-home message for me okay thank you very very much for being here today for talking to us to showing us your going to research field and for explaining the whole topic to us. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. The paper we've talked about is um, forthcoming. It's not yet published. It's written by Stephen Francis Mann and Daniel Gregory. That's called My Text Da Vinci 003 Have Inner Speech Think. We're going to link the uh, paper in the show notes. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify, or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw, produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne, produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan-Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.